Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Ben Smith on his debut novel, Doggerland. Ben Smith lives in Cornwall and is a lecturer in creative writing at Plymouth University, specialising in environmental literature and focusing particularly on oceans, climate change and the Anthropocene. His first poetry pamphlet, Sky Burials, was published by Warpole Press and his poetry and criticism have appeared in various journals and anthologies. And Doggerland, which we're going to be talking about today, is his first novel. Ben, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you for having me. Um, I want to ask how you would describe Doggerland, the novel, first of all. I normally describe it to people as a novel about two weird guys on a wind farm in a dystopian future. But my publisher and publicity guy tried to urge me not to say things like that. <laughs> so, it does pretty much cover it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess it's a novel about climate change and uh, about the Anthropocene. And I've always been interested in in writing about that. And I was researching Doggerland, the, the area, and read articles about how they were building wind farms in the middle of the North Sea. And I just thought this would make a wonderful setting for a novel. So really, the novel all comes out of the place in that kind of way. So it's it's very much a place-based novel as well. So the Doggerland of your novel, set slightly in the future, is is one of... Well, a world that that we have limited knowledge of, which we'll talk about perhaps later on, but certainly an environmentally damaged world, a flooded world. And, of course, this area, Doggerbank or Doggerland as once it was, historically was inundated with water. Um, Throughout the novel, you, you insert sections which are sort of historical accounts of the Doggerland as it was. Um, so perhaps we could talk about that first of all. Tell, tell us about Doggerland. Yes, well, Doggerland, so Doggerland is the name given to the area of land that, as you said, once connected Britain and continental Europe and was flooded and inundated at the end of the last ice age, forming what's now the North Sea and the English Channel. So it was, as you said, a, a country, well, a continent, really, that was probably actually the centre for Mesolithic culture in northern Europe at the time and was flooded during what was really the last major climate change event. 
And so for me, as someone interested in climate change, this just really spoke to me as an important place to be writing about. And yes, as you said, there's, I've included these, these sort of short, deep time sections running throughout the novel. And I mean, they, they don't connect up to the main narrative in a very obvious way, although actually I did sort of use them for structuring the book, which we can always talk about a little bit later, maybe. Yeah, they do uh, parallel. They do parallel mm-hmm. things that happen in the, in the novel. Yeah, I mean, well, interestingly, I actually, because when I started the novel, I had I had the setting and I had these characters, but I didn't really know what was going to happen. And I actually used the various stages in the sort of Mesolithic Doggerland as kind of jumping off points for bits of the narrative that I kind of wanted to get to. So there was a bit sort of three quarters of the way through the flooding of Doggerland where people would have become fishermen and they would have been living on small islands, traveling around by boat. So I knew that at that stage I wanted one of my characters to be out on a boat. And so that was actually where that bit of the story came from originally. And then I kind of retrofitted it around the the, the main plot and, and things like that. Um, so yeah, it was it was quite integral actually to the actual writing of the book, and I and I was well, I was very glad that when I sent it to my agent and publisher, they they liked those sections because they're quite strange otherwise. So tell us about your Doggerland then, the setting, the location of this novel, the place in which the action takes place. Well, as I said before, it's it's this vast wind farm um, set sometime in the future. And I mean, this sort of came from from just research into what's going on in the North Sea now. So I was interested in these these wind farms that are being that are being built at the moment. I mean, in the North Sea and all across the world. And some of these wind farms are absolutely huge. I mean, they are thousands of square miles in area, uh, thousands of turbines. They're the size of small countries, really. And I love the idea that, particularly in the North Sea, a place like that is being built on top of what was once this kind of hunter-gatherer landscape in the Mesolithic. And so that, for me, just as a purely kind of psychogeographic moment, I found really interesting. And so I kind of thought about these these wind farms, and I thought, well, maybe at some point in the future, we might get people living out on these wind farms and living out there and, and working on these wind farms. And, and if they did, they would be the first human inhabitants of Doggerland for 8,000 years, which... For me, just yeah, I was just really fascinated by that as a moment, or a possible moment in the future. Let's just expand on this future world a little, though. It's worth saying that the novel is also, you know, an exercise in a, a limited location and a limited cast. There's there's three main characters who we will talk about in a moment, and indeed their situation is um, particularly the character known as the boy he has limited knowledge of his situation of what's actually happened but at at the start of the novel what do we know well we know that the boy and the old man are out working on the wind farm we know that they have been out there for a long time although time is is quite hard to judge the boy has a watch that he keeps checking and replacing the batteries um but it doesn't really work properly and all of the other clocks that are in the rig where they live are sort of out of sync and the computer doesn't really work. So so we don't really know how long they've been out there. But we know that they're contracted to be out there. Um, they have a contract with the company that they work for that means that they are they're sort of out there for life, really. And we know that the boy came on uh, to the wind farm to take over his father's contract because his father 
disappeared or reneged on his contract is the word that the, the people say when they give Jem, the boy, his contract on the farm. So, so that's really all that we know at the beginning. And this company referred to as the company in the book, tell us something about them. Well, there, I wanted this sort of idea of, of this sort of vast, sprawling corporation of some kind that, that owned the energy production, maybe owned vast amounts of the mainland perhaps as well. There's sort of a suggestion that maybe the boy was in, was um, kind of brought up in the company almost. So that idea of, of sort of a corporation maybe superseding the nation state as, as the main authority um, and again, as you said, I, I sort of intentionally left this, left this sort of vague, um, as I think people are quite familiar with that, with that as an idea, I think. And so I, I felt like I didn't really have, have too much to say about that, that I thought was maybe necessarily interesting or new per se to do with the, the company. So I kind of just, just set that up and left it really. <laughs> and the, the book has, has a, quote from the the brilliant novelist and friend of the show melissa harrison describing the book as um the the road meets waiting for godot and i've I've seen a a few people refer to becker in in describing it and in one of those ways as well as the you know the sort of limited characters and the character interactions i mean we know why the boy and the old man are at these wind turbines because Mm -hmm. they're there to repair them and they have this contract but we don't really know whether that's even worth doing yeah that was um yeah something that i was i was really interested in exploring and um yeah i, I was very pleased when Melissa harrison said that about the book and and the other people in reviews had mentioned beckett and things like that because it basically yes me sh- shamelessly ripping off beckett <laughs> but putting it on a wind farm i think um and that's certainly what what i was going for with the book I'm, i absolutely love beckett's writing i think there's sort of two people in the world. There's people that find Beckett horribly depressing and there's people that find Beckett really funny. And I find Beckett funny and and very human, actually. I love, yeah, I think uh, Waiting for Godot and Endgame. I, I love the relationship between the characters in those. And, and so, yeah, I was sort of interested in writing this two-hander kind of thing, but trying to give it some, trying to give it a bit more of a narrative than Beckett does um, because I realised quite early on that I couldn't just have two guys sitting out on a wind farm and and talking to each other endlessly however much i would have loved to have written that but central to the to the novel is this relationship between the boy and the old man they do have names but you know it's it's it's, it's a device you use in the book to often not refer to them by name and and i want to talk about why yeah i mean that was partly to sort of emphasize the generational aspect of it um because i the book sort of all about generations really and what we inherit from generation to generation and that kind of thing but also it was really just what i felt maybe was an element of realism there in that if you are actually just out living and working only ever with one other person you probably wouldn't really use their name very much and so you would almost become uh, these sort of nameless figures because you wouldn't yeah you wouldn't use the other person's name in that kind of way um and i was also thinking about jobs i've had where you've got groups of men kind of working together and often young people be called the boy and older people be called the old man so i was yeah kind of referencing that sort of thing i think as well with that you've said a little about the boy already tell us something about the old man what do we know of him 
Well, the old man is is quite a, a strange figure, and um, and really, I mean, if the boy is someone who wants to fix things and keep things going and get on with work, the the old man is is a persistent procrastinator and will always be looking for other things that they can do other than getting on with their work. And one of the things that he's particularly interested in is trawling the seabed for artifacts from the Doggerland that was, which is deep beneath the waves. And so he fills his room with all kinds of fossils and things that have been trawled up from the seabed. And and really here, this was um, this all came from sort of research that I was doing into the archaeologists who were working on Doggerland, the sorts of things that they've found there. And I really like the idea of, well, if you were stuck out on a wind farm in the middle of the North Sea, probably you'd try to trawl up some stuff and see what you could find. So in that sense, the old man is sort of someone who maybe looks more to the past, um, whereas the boy maybe is more interested in the present and what's going on now. And you've mentioned that the the boy is there under contract to replace his father, who has who has disappeared and I don't want to talk too much about that because it's it's sort of central to the to the plot of of the yeah. novel we don't want to give too much away but there is a third character mm. um the pilot of a supply ship that brings them their food fundamentally and also um is sort of like antagonistic tell us something about him yeah I I really enjoyed writing the pilot because um, he's he's really just a git, um, <laughs> and uh, and yeah, I like I enjoyed writing him, and yeah, I, I, I needed. I mean, I think practically, I needed there to be some kind of contact with the mainland. So in in a way, he's sort of a device whereby you know it makes sense that they get food delivered and things like that, but in a controlled way, and it's controlled by someone who, as you said, is antagonistic to them, and so would want to be able to kind of put the squeeze on them when necessary if he wants to trade with them or, or change the terms in which they trade. But also, yes, he's kind of central to the to the plot in that he drops hints about the boy's father. It really kickstarts the plot, actually, and, and makes the boy start thinking about what might have happened to his father and start doubting what the old man has said or, or not said about uh, what happened to his father. And as we mentioned before about the what we know or don't know about the main about what's going on on shore, I wanted uh, the knowledge that we get to sort of be filtered through the pilot. So, I mean, the pilot says, you know, things are bad on shore and maybe they are bad. Maybe they are getting worse or maybe he's just saying that because he wants to be able to trade uh, in a more favorable way for him with the, the components. He's he's sort of black market trading with the boy and the old man. So, um, yeah, we never really know what's going on back on shore and. and apart from what the pilot tells us and what the boy can kind of hazily remember. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Listed to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Ben Smith about his debut novel, Doggerland. And Ben, I wanted to talk about, I mean, I guess go back to, to Beckett in a way um, and talk more about this, the central relationship between the boy and the old man, but particularly in terms of writing about boredom. They're in this yeah. very restricted setting, doing a, you know, a, a fundamentally you know, repetitive manual job um, with only each other's company. Tell me about how you've expressed that through the novel. Yeah, I mean, this was always something I, again, I, I sort of wanted to write about. I've always loved those stories where not a lot happens. Um, but at the same time, while I wanted to sort of express boredom, I wanted to try and do so in a way that isn't in and of itself boring. Um, so I, I kind of, and this was, again was playing around with with the limitations of the setting. I I love the idea that we wouldn't ever leave this wind farm, but that does pose a problem when you've got to fill a novel with things that could happen on a wind farm. So I have um pages and pages in my notebooks that list simply entitled things that could happen on a wind farm, um, and I just started thinking about well what could they what could they literally do with their time and. And apparently there's 208 pages of things that can happen on an offshore wind farm, as I've managed to get in the novel. The important thing with writing about boredom is to make sure that the boredom is varied. So I try to make sure that every scene where we just have a conversation between the boy and the old man, that they're doing something slightly different. So there's never never sort of two scenes where they're doing exactly the same thing. But also, I think, importantly, I did want to make sure that every scene, or at least every chapter, gave us some bit of information that did actually further the plot as well. So um, I, I did try, you know, I was trying really hard there to, whilst writing about not a lot happening, to try and make sure that you know, things did happen and there was a kind of a rising in conflict or, or development of the plot in some way in each of those scenes. And I want to talk also about the idea of writing these characters against against the nature i guess against the setting because we're talking about both the sea is you know vast and deep and these wind farms these wind turbines are tall um but there's also an element of 
time about the you know because obviously the the book has the historical sections the the idea of the of human beings against sort of deep time as well yeah and that was something that i was yeah i was particularly interested in really exploring and experimenting with in the novel and i mean one of the issues with climate change or one of the problems of writing about climate change is this problem of scale which is what you're really we're really talking about here the problem that our actions compared to the effects of climate change our individual actions seem so small and so insignificant and yet it's the cumulative impact of in, of these insignificant actions that is causing these vast global changes which will in turn then have huge impacts on our lives and yeah I, I was trying to think about ways of of enacting that throughout the novel and one was using those those sort of deep time sections where i have the the, the story of the inundation of dogland so just setting that against this this very very small story of two guys on a wind farm or and one one of them looking for his father this very human story but giving it that kind of that scale or that that perspective where we suddenly zoom out and see it for this this small story that it is um, but also realizing that just because human actions are small, that doesn't mean they're in- insignificant. They're just maybe not as significant as we thought they were, or significant in different ways. So, um, yeah. So that was really what I was what I was interested in doing was exploring those issues of scale and thinking about how we can how we can play around with those. And I want to sort of, I mean, ask, I guess, a similar question, but in terms of more generally writing fiction about climate change, you know, how to you know, get across the urgency of what is actually happening to our world through fiction. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is sort of a, a question that I'm always asking myself, what, what, what can fiction add to this debate, which seems so, so governed by, by the language of science, really? And I mean, the thing that I always come back to is, is the way that fiction hopefully can emotion, engage us emotionally with these stories. And also the way that fiction is, I mean, inherently about causality. You know, a, a novel is effectively structured around characters having desires or, or doing something that has these knock-on effects and, and creates some kind of change. Um, so in many ways, it's actually a really good form for exploring the very complex cause and effect changes that are that are coming about with climate change. So, um, yeah, I was interested in, in using this, the novel as a kind of, I mean, almost like a kind of experiment, almost like a scientific model, if you like, where you have, you put characters into this situation and, and then you see what comes out at the end and see what changes might, might be affected or, and how, what might change or what might, might not change as well. And again, writing about possible futures you know the the novel set in a in a future where there's been you know catastrophic climate change and obviously the the particular setting that you've chosen sort of dictates what that setting is going to be like but i just wa- i just wanted to talk about as you were writing the book like imagining possible possible futures yeah, it's it's interesting with that. I mean, I and, and what that was one of the reasons why I intentionally kept the focus small, um, kept the focus narrow. Sorry, just on the wind farm because I sort of, I mean, I sort of didn't want to get to get too entangled in much bigger sort of global predictions on what this climate change future might look like. 
we could be fairly certain that if things carry on as they are, the oceans will rise and and weather would become less predictable. So, um, so I sort of focused on that particularly. But I think also just, I mean, in terms of the, the sort of wider world, I think there are so many other great writers who have written brilliant novels about climate change that I sort of didn't, well, maybe, maybe it's partly this being my debut novel. I didn't feel like I, I could sort of come up with a vision of the future that would stand up against Margaret Atwood or someone like that. So I sort of decided to, to just not and focus just on this wind farm. And also, I think just, just sort of trust that my readers would, I guess, have, be able to infer whatever they wanted really about this, this climate change future. I mean, I did, I did think at one point about, you know, trying to make kind of predictions about, you know, what society might be like. But actually, I think at the time I was writing it, I think I had a sort of idea that, that maybe Britain would be part of some European super state. And then as a publication date got closer, Brexit happened. And so, so I thought, well, I'm quite glad I didn't make that prediction in my novel, as that would be <laughs> feel pretty ridiculous now. Um, so, yeah, I, di- I, didn't, I didn't feel confident enough, I think, to, to make these sort of big grand predictions but I hope that maybe I've, I've done enough to suggest that, that, that this sort of stuff is going on. And there was some, sp- some specific stuff that I did try and get in there. So I've been working a lot in, in my sort of job as lecturer at Plymouth University. I've been working a lot with marine scientists down there. So I was trying to get in bits of the research that they've been doing into things like ocean acidification and species lost in, loss in the ocean and microplastics and things like that. So... I mean, the boy spends a lot of his time fishing, but there's never any any real indication that he's ever even caught a fish in the entire time that he's been doing this, because species loss in the ocean is is a really serious issue, and again, one of those things that that could very likely happen. Certainly, large species loss. Um, so there were little bit things like that that I wanted to try and get in, but I sort of wanted I sort of shied away from making big predictions about the future. Oh, well, talking about those scientists that you know perhaps were an influence and and obviously we've talked about Beckett but I wondered what other writers were an influence on the novel I mean in terms of this novel particularly I I was sort of influenced by particularly well I mean Cormac McCarthy was another one um and that sort of tradition of those sort of I guess grim male American writers like Hemingway and Steinbeck who write in that kind of pared down sort of style I think this, again, for me was um, one of those things that I got what they were doing with their style. And because it's so pared down, I thought that might be a good a good thing to experiment with or to, to try out for my first novel. So those were the sort of direct influences. But, but I mean, more broadly, in terms of a novel that's all based around setting and place, those are the sorts of books that I'm most interested in, where the story and the characters really come out of the setting. So in that sense... Um, writers like Annie Prue with her visions of Wyoming, or even um, a writer like Laurie Moore with her very urban American settings that generate a particular type of character. So yeah, there's sort of, there's a lot, sort of a lot of authors that I'm interested in and, and enjoy their work. But I think def- definitely in terms of style, it was, it was writers like Hemingway, McCarthy, and, and then Beckett. And just to finish off then, can I get you to, to read us some of Doggerland? Yes, Absolutely. So I'm just going to read here from the beginning of the novel. Bootlaces. Nothing, 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 something. Fourth hook down on the drop line, there was a dark shape. The boy stopped pulling and sat back on his heels. 
The swell was small that day, and it was more than three metres from the platform down to the sea. The boy watched as the shape stretched and buckled beneath the grey water. Strange fish, he said to no one. The wind was blowing in from the west, consistent, ten or eleven metres per second by the feel of it, droning through the platform's pipes and grills and pushing the sea into hard ridges. The North Sea shifted from horizon to horizon, like a tarpaulin being dragged over rough ground. It looked sluggish, but under the surface, currents ripped and surged. It was hard to imagine the sheer tonnages hauling past every minute, every second. The boy wound the line around the railing until it was secure, then took hold of the hanging length, lifted it a few inches and let it fall. He moved it from side to side, but the hook was lodged. He'd have to pull it up. He moved the line again. It was heavy, whatever it was. He hoped his line wouldn't break. It had taken him a long time to get that length of cord. How long? Months? Years? He looked out at the horizon as if it would give him an answer, but couldn't even pick out where the grey of the sea became the grey of the sky. It was good cord. That was all that mattered. And a hundred miles offshore, it wasn't easy to get hold of good cord. Could you even get proper fishing line anymore? The wind squalled and worked itself through the seams of his overalls. Who could he ask? The old man wouldn't know. He didn't know. And there was no one else out there. He stood up, set his feet shoulder-width apart, and pulled his sleeves down over his hands. He moved his hands slowly and kept the rest of his body very still, as if trying to steady himself against the motion of sea and sky. His legs were planted almost a metre apart, and his sleeves barely covered his wide, calloused palms. Of course, the boy was not really a boy, any more than the old man was all that old. But names are relative, and out in the grey, some kind of distinction was necessary. He took hold of the line and, using the rail as a fulcrum, began to haul it up out of the water. As soon as the load broke the surface, the line tightened and rasped through his sleeves. He stopped for a moment and let the wind smooth the edges of the pane, then carried on pulling until the fourth hook was level with the platform. He looked down over the rail. It was a load of junk as usual, a greasy mass of netting and plastic, streaming and reeking. The whole thing was tangled into a dense lump, along with an oil can, some polystyrene and what looked like a burnt-out panel from a door. The boy tied off the line, straightened his back and blew lightly on his palms. Good catch, he said. Beside him, the thick steel support rose twenty metres to the rig. Above the rig's squat rectangular housing, the blades of the nearest turbine turned slowly in the washed-out sky. All around, to every horizon, the blades of the wind farm turned. I've been talking to Ben Smith. We've been talking about his debut novel, Doggerland, which is out in the UK from Fourth Estate. Ben, thank you so much for sharing it with us. Thank you. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Hold up. 
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.